Section following chapter 11 of Silly and its Legends by Henry James Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. A Legend of Piper's Hole. In the spring of 1651, there was sorrow and confusion of face at Silly. Blake and Ayrskirth, the rebel leaders, were approaching with the sea and land forces of the Parliament to wrest the islands from the gallant Sir John Grenville, the kinsman of that Beville Grenville who died so nobly for his king on Lansdowne Heath. The remains of the royal army, composed chiefly of officers and gentlemen of blood, prepared to meet the storm, which they did not hope to resist with success. Had they been, like their enemies, men who preferred their own selfish interests to those of their country, they would have treated with Van Tromp, who made them the most tempting offers on the condition of their ceding the islands to him. But the cavaliers knew that their duty was to contend against treason, not to imitate it. They refused even to listen to his proposals, or to convey to the stranger any portion of the old realm of England. They looked forward to the last act of that long agony, ready to meet face to face a superior force, ready, if need be, to die in harness, or if doomed to be the survivors of that dreadful ordeal, ready to endure to the end, to go forth from a country where they could no longer find it in their hearts to abide, and to bear their honourable scars to a land in which they could dwell, until, in the expressive language of scripture, this tyranny be overpassed. It was in Tresco, as it then began to be called, that the swords of the opposing parties first crossed each other, we well know how many causes had combined to add bitterness to the ordinary fierceness of war. The Puritan and the Cavalier not only waged a religious strife and felt a religious hatred, they had not alone the exasperation of personal motives of wrong and injury on the one side and of contempt and loathing on the other to sting and urge them on, but there was in both a spirit yet darker and more ruthless than these. Those who murdered the man Charles Stuart were likely to show scant mercy to the malignants who wore upon their bosoms a likeness or a bloody relic of the martyred king. Footnote. One of these is in possession of my family. It was worn by my ancestor, Sir Ralph Whitfeld of Whitfeld, a faithful servant and minister of King Charles, and is a beautiful miniature of the martyr, with the axe on the reverse. Footnote ends. So with these feelings both parties made their dispositions for the coming shock, and as Tresco was the first object of attack, Sir John Gredville employed all the means at his disposal to put it into a respectable state of defence. It was now protected by a fort situated on the heights above New Grimsby and called Charles's Castle. The principal garrison of the Royalists was there, but the ancient abbey of St. Nicholas was also entrenched and fortified and batteries were established on all the commanding positions round the coast. There was no lack of volunteers in such a cause, a band of fiery youths, the full hope misnamed Forlorn, watched the approach of the hostile fleet, and many a bold passage of arms seemed destined to take place, and many a desperate encounter to occur, ere Tresco should be lost and won. The command of the whole place was entrusted to a young gentleman named William Edgecombe of a noble house in the west of England. His years indeed were not many, but those were times when capacity for service was not measured by years. In those trying and terrible days, the boldest and the worthiest came out involuntarily from the common herd, and took the lofty place assigned to them as the nobility of intellect and of mind. The instinct of heaven's patent was recognised at once, 
and many a young man, like Graham of Montrose, passed over the heads of white-haired veterans, and was cheerfully followed and obeyed. So was it in this instance. William Edgecombe was but a child when, a few years before, he had left his home in Devonshire to draw, for King Charles, a sword almost too weighty for his arm. Since then he had ridden over well-nigh every field fought between the two parties, and had gained experience and won distinction in all, and now, a youth in age but a leader of high and approved qualities, he was placed by Sir John Grenville in the post of honour and of danger at Tresco. He was selected to meet the first onset of those bands whose iron discipline had stemmed and rendered vain the dashing and devoted bravery of the cavaliers. The task assigned to him was hopeless. The might of the protectorate which had stricken down the crown of England was not to be checked by a handful of zealous men on a distant and rocky isle. There was no prospect of success. But though there was no chance of victory, there was, on the other hand, a certainty of that which is equally dear to a proud and faithful heart. There was honour to be gained, there was duty to be done, there were dangers to be met, there was vengeance to be gratified, and, above all, to one who reverenced his murdered sovereign, and clung to the cause of his party and his house, there was to be sought that distinction which attaches itself always to the leader amid high deeds, when those he loves look on admiringly, and those he hates stand before him face to face. With these inducements to play his part worthily, William Edgecombe had taken the chief command at Tresco and prepared to hold it to the last. He did hold it, as he had vowed to do, on the true faith of a cavalier. The enemy first effected his landing in front of the abbey, which was attacked in force and carried by storm. The relics of the garrison were rallied by William Edgecombe in person, who collected all parties holding different detached posts, and fell so fiercely on the rebels, and maintained a fight so long and so doubtful, that he was on the point of recovering the abbey itself. In the midst of the bloody contest, when success hung in the balance, the building took fire and was soon in a blaze. William Edgecombe sullenly withdrew his men and fell back upon his last stronghold, the ancient castle, named after his honoured master Charles. There he organised his means of defence, and prepared proudly and silently for the last closing scene. The shock was not long in coming, and when it came it was irresistible. Blake in person brought his ships into New Grimsby and directed their fire upon the position of the Royalists. On the land side the attack was conducted by Colonel Fleetwood, a stout and tried soldier. The strife was stubborn, but its conclusion was such as might have been anticipated from the inequality of the contending parties. The fortress was captured by a sudden and desperate assault. When the rebel forces were fairly in possession of the place, and the day was evidently lost, the governor, faithful to his charge, disdained to surrender or to accept the honourable terms offered by Fleetwood, he descended to the magazine, laid a train of powder on the ground, took a pistol from his belt, and coolly exclaiming, God save King Charles, pulled the trigger, and essayed to bury the old fortalice, with its mingled crowd of true men and traitors, in one common ruin. The earth shook as with an earthquake. There was a breathless lull, and after that, torrent of flame. And then men looked in each other's faces with a mute inquiry of horror and dismay. When these feelings had in some degree subsided, and measures could be taken for restoring order, and for retaining what had been so fearfully won, it was found that, though the roof was blown off, the walls were comparatively uninjured. Some hasty repairs were, therefore, effected in the breaches caused by the previous attacks. Two hundred parliamentarians were quartered within the place under the command of Colonel Fleetwood, and finally the dead were gathered together to be buried in a soldier's grave. It was, however, remarked that the body of the governor was not found after the closest search. 
a flag of truce on the part of sir john grenville from st mary's had come to demand it for internment the young cavalier was dear to his general and to his comrades and all ranks were anxious to pay the last honours to one whom all respected and loved but their wish was ungratified they doubted not that he had perished with so many others by his own devoted act they sought for him sorrowing but found him not every faculty was given to their inquiries but to the strictest investigation there was only one result they found him not in a couple of days matters resumed their usual course at tresco the island being wholly occupied by the forces of the commonwealth only the usual military precautions were taken and people went about their ordinary business as before the inhabitants were attached to the royal cause and loved little the steeple hats and grotesque manners of the newcomers they dared not show these feelings save by tacit dislike and by avoiding as much as they possibly could all intercourse with the rebels it is said that at Scilly women govern the men and in this case it was the gentler sex that took the lead in manifesting their aversion to the puritans there could not indeed be a stronger contrast between two classes of men sprung on the same soil than existed betwixt the sour independents with their grimaces and their cant and those high-born and graceful youths whose very failings of gallantry and reckless profusion only endeared them to the Salonian damsels so there arose between the conquerors and the conquered that silent war which is so galling and so difficult withal to be conducted with success the soldiers of the lord as they styled themselves found their claims held very cheap among the delilahs of tresco their most unctuous compliments and tenderest snuffles only excited contempt or ridicule so the puritans confined themselves to their quarters singing there their psalms out of tune their own way and devoting the moabitish maidens to satan whose children the cavaliers they were so ill-advised as to prefer to the saints and lights of israel there was one exception to the general character of the victors the young daughter of colonel fleetwood had accompanied the expedition and had joined her father at the fort after its storm and capture she had no mother for the colonel had been early left a widower so that her home was with him most men have a weak point in their hearts and that of colonel fleetwood was excessive fondness for his child the love he had borne to her mother was transferred and strengthened by its transference to the only pledge that love had given him nor was the object of that beautiful idolatry unworthy of it she was very fair with a broad brow of modest intelligence and an arch spirit in her hazel eye that somewhat protested against her starched wimple and the discreet amplitude of fold in which a godly maiden then wrapped her charms from profane eyes she was romantic too like most of the lovely and the young and was not prevented from indulging in her tastes by her doting father he was perhaps fonder of her from the very difference that existed between her habits and his own the ascetic gloom of his personal and party manners could not withstand the sunshine which her face threw upon his path he had not the heart to cloud it by severity or rebuke many there were of those zealous for the lord who thought the damsel no better than one of the babylonian sisterhood or as one of those daughters of men who seduced the sons of god to sin they predicted evil of her as with her gay laugh and merry jest she wandered abroad even where she listed nay they resented either her levity or her scoff so openly and so warmly as to take up their parable against the stout old colonel and to make sundry unsavoury comparisons between his daughter and a lady who delights in scarlet robes one habakkuk plead with the lord counselled his hearers in a sermon especially directed to this subject to make known their sentiments before the congregation which piece of advice being carried into effect rather incautiously was construed into mutiny by the colonel 
who incontinently hung the reverend mr plead with the lord and five of his audience on the rock since from their fate called hangman's isle and thenceforth the fair mildred fleetwood was suffered to range alone over the downs and calms sitting and dreaming away many an hour with her eyes fixed upon the sea and her heart perchance lost in its aimless search for that love which is the sole object of a woman's existence she was once thus occupied yearning unconsciously after the unknown and peradventure the unattainable and resting lost in these musings amid the wildest portion of the belt of rocks which girds all that side of tresco the time was suited to the spirit of the place and of her who visited it for the summer eve was just melting into twilight and the sea below lay slumbering in a waveless calm she had descended a steep ledge of granite and was seated in a little cove near the mouth of an ancient cavern called piper's hole it had an evil reputation in the neighbourhood it had taken its name from some mysterious tale of death connected with one who had penetrated too far into its labyrinths and who had never returned it was said indeed to pass under the sea and join a cave of the same name near penennis head in st mary's the common people shunned it with superstitious awe at that period no one doubted that phantoms were permitted to appear on earth and tales of possession and witchcraft were circulated as articles of faith the most learned and most religious men were not exempt from this weakness as good old richard baxter's book abundantly testifies the piper's hole enjoyed and maintained its supremacy of ghostly visitations nor was this belief confined to the studios of the weak it was held also by those who accounted the first soldiers in europe a puritan sentinel placed here on outpost duty averred that he saw issuing from the bosom of the earth a grim figure clothed in white that shook its finger at him with a menacing gesture and so frightened him that he fell flat upon his face and when he regained his senses the ghastly form was gone little however wrecked fair mildred fleetwood of these tales of horror perhaps they were not even displeasing to her they gave food to her morbid appetite for novelty they excited her romantic feelings so as was often her wont she strayed to the haunted spot and there sate in her musing mood thinking how fair were all the objects around and being unconsciously herself the fairest there a sudden noise as it seemed close to her made her start and turn around she saw almost at her side that which perhaps would possess no terrors for a maiden's heart and which yet was more dangerous to her tranquillity than all the phantoms of the tomb there stood by her the figure of a young man whose appearance pleaded eloquently in his favour even though he spake not a word for his handsome features were pale and wasted and his frame seemed bowed down with pain and feebleness in his whole bearing and manner was the unmistakable impress of gentle blood his brow was bound round with a scarf as if to cover a wound his attire was though rich torn and stained and his figure was bent and full of weakness and lassitude mildred fleetwood gazed on him with timid and speechless surprise there are some men whom women instinctively trust and the stranger was one of these she looked upon him then with astonishment but without a particle of fear puritan as she was she was a lady by birth and felt a somewhat ungodly pride in the six martlets of her father's shield she knew instinctively that she was in the presence of a gentleman and she trusted in his claims and in her own the unknown spoke first and addressed her thus fair lady whose features belie that vile garb who are you and how is it that you do not fear to approach this haunted spot from which the very boldest shudder and turn away i am mildred fleetwood replied she timidly why should i having done no evil and meaning none dread to venture here but you whence do you come 
and why are you in this place and where is your abode the young man looked at her for a moment thoughtfully and his face assumed by degrees a gentler and even a tenderer expression still he did not speak until emboldened by his silence she repeated the last question when he replied to her simply if you have the courage come and see he held out to her his hand and after a moment's hesitation the love of the marvellous and womanly curiosity and perhaps a rising feeling of pity and partiality prevailed she took the hand extended to her and supported by her guide advanced towards the mouth of piper's hole it were difficult to describe her sensations as they proceeded in silence towards the cavern of ill repute they were not exactly fearful but more like a thrill of absorbing interest mingled with romance and with a strange trust in her pale and graceful guide they moved slowly until they reached the low-browed entrance of the vault when the youth entreated her courteously and with a respect befitting one who addressed a queen to pause while he went on alone he apparently kindled a torch for a quick light streamed up in the dim chasm and gilded his form as he returned he again took her hand and invited her onward and she once more complied stooping low at intervals they passed the rude portals of the cavern and found themselves within its precincts few there were at that epoch who would not have feared to tread the pavement of that dread spot as night was falling around but sooth to say the courage of the young maiden will dare many perils especially with one she trusts sharing those perils by her side it was a place to charm and fascinate a lover of nature the cave rose to a lofty height growing higher as they proceeded and terminating as it appeared at a distance of about fifty paces in a dark and fathomless pool on which floated a small boat you have done much lady said the youth when they reached it will you now turn back or even venture on and solve the mystery of piper's hole he offered his arm to assist her in entering the skiff and after a natural pause and a momentary tremor she rested on it and stepped over the side a few strokes of an oar sent the little vessel flying along the dim pool and it soon grounded on the sand at the opposite extremity leaping lightly on the shore he went forward and again kindled a torch which he brought with him in his hand and held down to guide her steps as she disembarked and followed him she found herself in a vaulted room of considerable extent bounded on three sides by the solid rock and on the fourth by that black lake which had just borne them thither in one corner was a bed covered with a soldier's cloak some arms lay beside it and there were scattered around many boxes and packages of various sizes and some provisions were seen in an open basket by the head of the couch all these things mildred fleetwood took in womanlike at a glance she then turned and gazed earnestly upon her mysterious companion he smiled at her look of inquiry and said in a gentle voice such as a woman loves to hear for it is the tribute of strength to her weakness well lady you have learned the secret of my abode and you have a right to know the rest you have told me your name and i will require your confidence by entrusting you with mine yet it must sound strangely to the ears of your father's daughter i am william edgecombe the fair puritan started but not with fear it was indeed the famous leader of the royalists so long deemed dead and so sincerely mourned who now stood beside her in that solitary cave the tale of his escape from death was soon told he had been flung to a considerable distance by the explosion that destroyed the fortress but after a long swoon he had recovered to find himself though bruised and weak almost without a wound in the confusion that followed the capture of the place he had managed to crawl away unseen favoured by the shadows of evening and had gained piper's hole which had been formerly used under his directions as a hiding-place for stores there he had remained awaiting an opportunity of escape from the island and subsisting partly on what had been placed there by his orders and partly on food conveyed to him by a fisherman whom he had employed and to whom he had confided the place of his retreat they had contrived and put into practice 
the little spectral delusions which coupled with the bad reputation of the locality had served to drive away all intruders from the spot until mildred fleetwood had ventured there these things were told in a manner that went to the maiden's heart she listened and pitied and looked wistfully upon the face of him who had done high deeds but spake of them so modestly and there was a tear in her eye when she parted from him as he prayed her that she would meet him yet once more and she went not without a low whispered promise to return she came again according to her pledge and many were the long hours spent in sweet communings within that cavern and many a vow of constancy was given and received and as his eye regained its fire and his step its buoyancy her brow began to grow thoughtful and her soft cheek waxed pale at last one evening at the trysting place he informed her of the arrival of that hour which she had so much dreaded a boat was even then in readiness to take him in the disguise of a fisherman past the cruisers of the rebels to st mary's he pressed her to fly with him and to become his bride the struggle between love and duty in her heart was a sore one her bosom swelled almost to bursting and her brain burned but if for a second she wavered it was for a second only she steadily refused to fly she was trusted loved idolized by her father he was alone in his old age his life was centred in her it broke her heart to part from her lover but she knew that it would break her parents heart to part from her and her choice was made she bade her lover godspeed and charged him to remember her and to expect happier times it was now her turn to soothe and support him the tender girl became the comforter of the high-born and high-spirited man he felt the justice of her pleading and acquiesced in her decision though man's innate selfishness could not but chafe against it finally they parted after a long embrace he went to suffer for his faith in exile and she remained to return day after day to the scene of her vanished happiness and to pray for him who was afar off and who by being faithful to his god and to his king gave an earnest of his fidelity to her years passed by long weary years for them both at intervals few and far between they had communicated with each other but they had no hope of meeting until the shadow of the protectorate fleeted away amid derision and contempt and charles the second was restored then indeed a change came over their fortunes honoured and trusted by the monarch william edgecombe returned in his train to england he had no difficulty in protecting colonel fleetwood who was permitted to retire to his estate in buckinghamshire and there end his days in peace and tranquillity his old antagonist and present benefactor became his son-in-law and he lived to see around his hearth children sprung from that mixture of loyal and republican blood he ceased even to wonder at the change in his own sentiments when he felt more inclined to smile than to shake his head at the romantic adventure of piper's hole and his eye actually lightened with pleasure when he heard that among the beauties of the court one of the fairest the merriest and the most virtuous was the daughter of the old puritan officer mildred edgecombe End of section. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.